forward to seeing Colby next week. I missed Colby. I haven't talked to Colby in two weeks. I think I'm having some kind of Colby withdrawal, so I need some to talk to Colby. I've been, I've been trying out to text him every day, and <laughs> I'm joking, but anyway. Uh, you know, uh, one of the fun things about having a two-year-old and having older children, I have a nine-year-old and a 12-year-old and 14-year-old, is my wife and the three older children, the five of us will sit around uh, dinner time, and sometimes when they're good, and sometimes we have good dinner times, uh, we'll just laugh and tell stories and, and things like that. And uh, eventually one of us will laugh, and then we'll all start laughing. You know how families do. We all laugh and everything. And, and then John David, who's, you know, two and a half, he doesn't quite understand what we're laughing about, but he, he doesn't want to be, uh, he wants to, he doesn't want to miss out, so he starts laughing as well. He kind of joins in the conversation. And when he starts laughing, that makes all of us laugh even more because he didn't know what we're talking about, but he's laughing, and then we start laughing. But we kind of feel bad for him because he doesn't really know what we're talking about, but he wants to fit in, so he kind of just does what, what we do. And in other ways, he is always imitating his brother and his older sisters in other ways as well. And last week, one of my older children, uh, they said something that was kind of inappropriate. And it may not have been horrible for a middle schooler to say, but it was, it was certainly you don't want your two-year-old saying it. And so it was a little inappropriate, and I was kind of like, don't say that. And then... Then uh, John David repeated it, and I said, oh, gosh. So I talked to the other one. I said, listen, you can't say these things, for one, but, but you can't say it around John David because he's the repeater. He will repeat like a little parrot, whatever you say. So I explained to him that if you say things, he's going to imitate it. Now, it's kind of cute for little John David to imitate his siblings from time to time. Uh, but outside of that, it's not really a good thing. It's not really uh, a cool thing to, to be labeled an imitator. Uh, there's something inauthentic about imitation. In America, we value being original. Uh, we, we value being special. We value being unique. Uh, but being called an imitator is essentially an insult in, in many ways, in many contexts. But as we're going to see today, being an imitator of Christ is our primary calling. And when we are imitators of Christ, we then are original. When we imitate Christ, we are special. We are unique. Because in Christ, we are who we were meant to be fully in the first place. As we're going through 1 Thessalonians, we're talking about having hope in the midst of adversity, in the midst of trials, and all this kind of stuff. And, and being an imitator in Christ will help us have hope in him. So 1 Thessalonians today, starting in chapter 1, verse 1. It says that Paul, Silvanus, also called Silas and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, 
But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Father in heaven, as we continue to worship today, we thank you for this letter that you've given us, this letter to the Thessalonian church that Paul and Silas and Timothy wrote that shows us a glimpse of what they were struggling with. Yes, they were a good church, but they had their own struggles. They had their own temptations. So I pray that as we go through this book and this series, that you would show us what we can learn from it in our individual lives, as both as people and as a church body. Father, I pray that my words are yours, that they reflect your heart today, and that you fill me with your spirit, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we dive into today's text, just who were the Thessalonians? How did their church come into being? Well, we see their start in Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 1, tells us this. Now, when they, being Paul, Silas, and Timothy, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where, they were, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. This is what they would do. The synagogues are where the Jewish people would meet in the city. And they was met on Saturdays. And they would go in and they would have uh, Torah readings and things like this. And Jesus did the same thing. He would go in and he would reveal that he was the Messiah. Well, Paul was going in on these Saturdays, three Saturdays in a row. And was revealing that Jesus was the Messiah. He, had, he was a former rabbi. He had ability to get up and speak. And that's what he did. Verse 3. He explained and proved that it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead. And he said, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. This is the long-awaited Messiah. And some of them were persuaded. Some of the Jews were persuaded to join Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks. These were non-Jewish people. Many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So this was his custom. He would go into a, a city. He would go into the Jewish synagogue. He would first preach the gospel to the Jews, and some would believe, and then maybe some of the Greeks in the area would believe as well. Now, after this, there was a disturbance among the people. Once their citizens started being saved, once they started following Jesus, there was a disturbance. But this is all we really know of Thessalonica until we get to this letter. So today, I'm going to give you several traits from here in this first uh, chapter of being a Christian imitator. Verse 1 talks about how it's Paul, Silvanus, which is another name for Silas and Timothy. This was their standard greeting, and these were the three men who helped plant the church. And he says in verse 2 that we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, which takes us to our first trait, number one, that imitators are faithful. Imitators are faithful. Look at verse 3. He says, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith. This idea, work of faith, this phrase, work of faithfulness, has this idea of a complete body of work. Now, during the NCAA tournament time, uh, basketball or baseball, or during the college football playoff selection time, and I'm so thankful that possibly the playoff is expanding from four teams to 12 because, you know, no offense, Clemson or Alabama fans, but it just gets old seeing the same four teams every year. 
but as it expands, or as, as we, the tournament time happens and there's a selection committee, um, the, many times you'll hear the selection committee say why they chose a certain team over another team. And they'll say stuff like, well, you know, you look at their whole body of work, it was good enough to get into the tournament. For instance, maybe they had a bad loss, but overall they beat enough good teams. They, they looked good enough to warrant a spot in the tournament. Their body of work, their resume, so to speak, was good enough. When Paul and his associates pray for the Thessalonians, they're praying and they're thinking about the church's body of work as believers. They weren't a perfect church. Now, they weren't a flawless church, but mostly they were a church that was faithful to Jesus. And that's essentially all God asks of us as a church. Amen. We're not going to be perfect. We're not going to be flawless. We're going to sin. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to, we're going to sin against each other from time to time. We're going to need forgiveness, all these things. But are we faithful to Christ? That's all God asks of us. Is our body of work as a church body considered faithful? The Thessalonians, that was the case for them. We will sin, we will get it wrong, but overall, are we faithful? Imitators of Jesus are faithful. Secondly, imitators are loving. Imitators are loving. It says in verse 3 that they practice a labor of love. A labor of Labor means they worked at something. You know, I've, I've seen my wife deliver four babies. Labor is work. It certainly is work. And we were talking last night about, for some reason, we got on the subject of all the four babies that were born. And I was trying to remember who all was in each delivery room. And I was trying to, it was a little fuzzy because we had four of them. And we were talking about how John David was, was, just came flying out. They had to catch him at the bottom. And it just, we talked about all the, all, and I said to my wife, I said, you know, I, by the fourth child, I kind of knew what I was doing, right? I kind of was helpful. I wasn't just in the way, you know, because she's doing all the work. I'm just figuring out what I need to be doing, right? Well, labor of love is work. They worked at loving, and that's what love is. Love is work. Love is labor. That's what Paul's referring to. He's not referring to romance. He's not referring to lust or some pleasure loving. He's referring to loving that is work. Marriage takes work. All relationships take work. If you want to have a relationship with your sister or your brother or your parents or your grand, grandparents or your grandson or anyone in the family or a friend, you have to work at it. I have, I have several good friends who I grew up with and have families now. They don't live here. And if I want to have a relationship with them, I have to text them. Or they have to text me or I have to call them or they have to call me. It t I have to put forth effort. It takes work to have relationships. It's the labor of Love. When you, when you commit to making things work, that is love. It's unloving to not work on things. To just give up is unloving. This is a church that worked at loving one another, which is why they were a faithful church. They worked at loving one another. That's part of being faithful. Imitators work at loving each other. Third, imitators also have an unwavering hope. An unwavering hope. Look what he says in verse 3. They had a steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Steadfastness has the idea of a perseverance. It's pressing on. No matter how many times I drive around this parking lot, I'm going to find, at this grocery store, I'm going to find a parking place. Right? 
If I just drive enough around, if I just do enough, if I just continue on, if I'm just steadfast, if I just persevere, if I just have unwavering commitment, no matter how hard things get, no matter how difficult things become, imitators of Christ can have this unwavering hope. And we can have this hope not because of what we do or what we can do. We have this hope because of who we are in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4. He says, you have this hope because for, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. What does this mean in this context? He, talk, he says if, that you're loved by God and he's chosen you. Well, you know, if you are loved by God, you are chosen by God. But what does that mean? Well, to love someone is to choose them. To love someone is, is to choose them. Every day I have to make a decision with my head, with my heart, to choose to love my wife. Every day I have to make a decision to choose to love the Gamecocks, even though they're going to give me a day of agony, right? Yeah, I still have to choose that. Every day we choose. When we love someone, we choose them. God loves us. He has chosen us and he loves us. We can have an unwavering hope in God because God has loved us and he has chosen us and he will never let us go from his grip. He will not one day just unlove us or just one day unchoose us. So that gives us hope. Furthermore, Paul says in verse 5, we can have hope because of this. Verse 5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And he says, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. When the Thessalonians heard the gospel, when they received the gospel, they didn't just hear it. Well, they heard it, but then it had a powerful impact in their life. The gospel filled them with the Holy Spirit. It convicted them of sin. And that's how we know we're Christians. Did you know that? One way we know we're Christians is when we read God's word, are we convicted? Or do we, do we see God's word and we say, you know what, I thought I had things figured out, but I've read this and I'm thinking, you know what, I need to change this in my life. That's why sometimes we don't maybe want to read God's word because we know if we get in the word, we're going to get convicted because we have the Holy Spirit in us and God's going to make us change. Are you convicted by God's word? If so, that's a good sign. If not, you have cause to worry. But we can have hope in Christ when we hear God's word and it comes upon us in power and conviction, just like the Thessalonians had. So three imitators have an unwavering hope, not in who we are or what we can do, but in who Jesus is and what he has done. Number four, imitators experience affliction. Imitators in Jesus experience affliction. Look at verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. If you flip over to, to Acts chapter 17, it, it tells us this right here. I don't have it on the screen. But right after a, a bunch of them became Christians, it says that, the Jews were jealous, and they took some wicked men, and they formed a mob, and they set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of this man, Jason. 
And when they could not find him, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities saying, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. They're all acting against the decrees of Caesar. And verse 8 says that the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And they took their money and they, uh, as security and they let them go. It said these people have turned the world upside down and now they're turning Thessalonica upside down. You will experience affliction as a Christian because people do not want their lives turned upside down. They do not want their lives changed. So many stories of people I know who are missionaries and they go to a foreign country. They're so excited to get there to, to spread the gospel, especially places where I've never heard the gospel. And some of them may think when they get there that people are just waiting for them to hear the gospel and they're not. They tell them that they're a sinner. They tell them they need God's forgiveness. They need God's justification to be made right with God through Jesus Christ. And they don't want to hear that sometimes. Because they have their life. They have their dreams. They have their rhythms. When you follow Christ, you will experience affliction. This word affliction has this idea of being squeezed, being squeezed. Have you ever been in an elevator before with too many people? You feel a little trapped, a little squeezed this past weekend. You know, we have like 16 people in my family, not really, but it feels that way sometimes. And we loaded up our cart with all our luggage and we had to get in the elevator. And we were just one, we were just one floor up, so I really didn't want to have to do it, but there's only one way to get that cart up there. And so I told the rest of the family, I'll take the stairs, I'll squeeze into this little elevator. So I squeezed into the elevator with my cart and everything and doors closed. And right when the door was closing, somebody was coming out, oh, wait, let me get in. And her and her, her friend got in and I was like, oh, gosh, I missed the days of the pandemic where no one was allowed to ride the elevator with you. <laughs> and they kind of squeezed in, right? And she was all talkative and everything. And I was like, I'm trying to remember who I am. And I'm Christian. I'm a pastor. And all this, you know, trying to be on my best behavior. And I'm talking. But, you know, you feel kind of squeezed and then you kind of get out and it's awkward. And then those doors open and you kind of the pressure's relieved and you kind of get out, right? And uh, this, is what, this, this is what this idea It's uncomfortable. When you're squeezed, it's, un it's uncomfortable. And this is what affliction or persecution feels like. It's uncomfortable. It's increasingly uncomfortable to parade your Christian beliefs, to tell people what you believe or why you believe it. It's because Jesus has saved you. And it feels like there's nothing you can do about it. So as you attempt to imitate you also experience joy. It says that you took affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. See, as an imitator of Christ, even when there's affliction, and there will be, even when there's suffering, there is joy in Jesus. The Holy Spirit gives you that joy. You wake up in the morning, and you might feel bad, or you might feel worrisome, or you might feel anxious, but you still have the joy that passes all understanding. The Holy Spirit has given you that no matter what you're struggling with, no matter what you're going through, no matter what kind of affliction, even if you are actually suffering for Jesus, which you will in ways that other people won't suffer, we have this joy that we know that Jesus, uh, that we know Jesus because the Spirit is in us. So imitators experience joy. Number six, imitators become examples become examples so what he says in verse 7 you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia 
Now, Thessalonica was a main port city in what we now call Greece. And in fact, it's one of the few biblical cities that still exists today or the remnants of it. And it's still, a, it, and it, the location of Thessalonica is still a, a thriving city, modern city. It's still there. It was, it, it's a port city with an influential uh, location. So even then, in the biblical times, believers in all the surrounding towns, they would, they would see what are the Christians in Thessalonica doing? How are they handling this affliction? How are they handling the suffering? How are they handling the things in our lives? And they became an example. They weren't perfect, but they were faithful. And this is why Paul is writing them. They were faithful to Jesus. They, they did the, what they were called to do. And so they were an example to the rest of the surrounding areas. You know, as a church, First Baptist Monk's Corner, uh, we're not going to be perfect. We're not going to be flawless. We're not going to be sinless. But we're still going to be an example. And the question is, what kind of example are we setting? What when people think of First Monk's Corner, what do they think of? Hopefully, overall, our, our, our work, our body of work is a church that's faithful. We've been here for 101 years, so God seems to think so. But what kind of example are we setting? And then as in your own life, what kind of example are you setting? Because you are setting an example. It's either positive or it's negative. What, what do people think? Every day in your life, you're setting an example. When I'm on the elevator with people and I'm squeezed in, I get a little irritated. I'm setting an example. And I have to make sure they understand that I'm the pastor of the Methodist church, not First Baptist church. I'm joking. It's a joke. <laughs> I would never say that. Never do that. But. Well, what, what kind of example are we setting? Right? We're an example. Imitators of Jesus gives people an example, an idea of what a Christian is. If, if you're the only Christian someone knows, that's, that's who they're seeing in you. That's kind of a lot of pressure, but really it's not because you have the Holy Spirit guiding you and leading you. Imitators become examples. Number seven. We only have 14 more, so I'm almost there. Number seven. Imitators become known. They become known. This is somewhat related to our previous one. They become known. Verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we don't have to say anything. Because the church had a good reputation, they were able to witness throughout the region. So if you have a bad reputation, your witness is stifled. But if you have a good reputation, people will hear you. They will listen to you. The, the, the church planters had no rebuke for the Thessalonians here because they were being faithful in spreading the gospel. And because they had a good reputation, they could spread the gospel. They, they lived like Christians. I remember when I was in high school, as I was starting to, uh, God was kind of drawing me back to the church. From about 7th grade to about 11th grade, I didn't really... I didn't go to church. That was a youth group. You know, I kind of went to church up through youth group, and then I kind of quit. I didn't really go to church. I didn't want to be at church. I didn't really have any desire to follow Jesus or anything like that. And uh, I remember that they started a Christian club or something in my high school. And I was feeling convicted that I needed to get back into worship. I needed to start reading my Bible and things like this. And I went to uh, the club during the oh, you're a Christian. I was like, well, I, didn't know. I guess I am, right? That was convicting to me. I could go to high school with people. I wasn't some horrible child, but still, I go to high school with someone every day. And I go to a Christian, and they're like, wow, no, you are a Christian. I'm like, well, I haven't really been living it lately, right? When you meet someone, do they, are they surprised that you know Jesus? 
They shouldn't be. Imitators, we, we, we are known, right? Living like Christians means that you'll be known for that. Number eight, imitators turn from idols. They turn from idols. Look at verse nine. For they themselves, the people in the area, they report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, Thessalonica was just like any other unreached city or, or you know, partially reached city where the gospel had just come. The people of the area had their own religions, had their own their belief systems, and they worshiped false idols. They worshiped all sorts of different gods. The difference is Christianity is an exclusive faith. There's one God. It's monotheistic. We worship one God, not many gods. It's not like Hinduism where you worship millions of gods. You worship one God. Jesus demands you to turn from the idols of your life to follow him. Now, not many of us in here today are going to struggle with literally worshiping false gods. I remember when I lived in North Carolina, there was a, a Thai a restaurant I went to. Thai food. It was great, great Thai food. And it's a little small town. They have the best Thai restaurant and I don't normally eat that kind of thing, but there wasn't a lot to choose from. So I was like, well, I'll try the Thai place. And it was great, right? And, uh, but they had this little idol, little, a literal idol above the cash register where they would put a little orange on there and they would feed the idol and everything. So people do do it, right? And it's kind of what they do. Now, not many of us maybe have struggle in that area, especially if you're a Christian. But, you know, we can have idols of the hands or idols of the mind, of the heart. And we do have many idolatrous tendencies pulling at us. We're apt to spend more time with other pursuits than we are with Jesus. Where, where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your thoughts? Where do you spend your disposable income? Now, they're not necessarily idols, but those areas are at risk of becoming an idol in our life if we don't watch. Imitators of Jesus are turning from those idols uh, in Thessalonica, it had been very obvious that they had turned from him. What, hey, are we going to the festival of so-and-so this week? No, I'm not doing that. Why not? Well, I don't worship that idol. It would be very obvious among them, and they had turned from it. They didn't care what the culture would say. They didn't care about the reaction they would have. They didn't care about the pushback they would receive. They cared about imitating Jesus Christ. And finally, number nine, imitators wait for Jesus. Imitators wait for Jesus. Number 10, he says, and you wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. A significant portion of the Christian life involves waiting. And I wish it didn't. It involves waiting. I'm not a very patient person, as naturally. You know, I'm, I'm waiting on becoming patient, <laughs> right? I don't like to wait on certain things, but, but following Jesus means that many times he just stops you in your tracks and you wait. You know, the pandemic has been a massive waiting time. For eight weeks, we didn't worship in person. It was hard. Mr. Bill, remember how hard it was? It was hard. We were, so, we were so excited to kind of get back in here. And then we still kind of waited. waited for, uh, we waited for people to feel healthy. We waited for a vaccine. All these things you waited for so people could get back in to come in. The Christian life is that way. 
Sometimes you're just going along and then you just stop in your tracks and you're just waiting. Now, and when you're waiting on the Lord, God doesn't always tell you how long you'll wait. It's not like a time stoplight where you can, time, where you can count it down. Sometimes you don't be done waiting. Jesus, our resurrected Savior, Lord, and King, he's coming again. And to those who have not believed in him, he says right here in verse 10, his wrath and judgment will be poured out. But for those who know Jesus, this wrath that was meant for us was poured on him. That's the great thing about what Christ has done for us. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve judgment from God. But Christ Jesus on the work on the cross, he took that from us. It was a, it was a great exchange. That's how Martin Luther used to call it. God exchanged our sinfulness for his righteousness. And we got Christ's righteousness. On the cross, we've escaped what we deserved. So we wait for him to come back. And now we eagerly await his return where he will make what Scripture says a new heaven and a new earth. Look at Revelation 21 as we close. John, writing on the Isle of Patmos in exile, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, the vision that God had given him. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is the idea of you're the groom and you're standing right here. You look out these back doors, and here comes the bride. I remember my wedding day. Doors flew open, and there was my wife. That's the type of excitement John is saying that he's seeing as he's watching this new Jerusalem come down from heaven like a wedding day. Look what it says in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The other day, John David was running across the floor, and he tripped on something and fell, and he cried. There was no visible mark that I could tell, but he cried, and he started crying, these big crocodile tears, you know. And I picked him up, and I said, oh, you'll be okay. And I wiped those big crocodile tears from his eyes, and, and then everything was fine. Once those tears are wiped, everything was fine. That's what he's saying. He will wipe away every tear. Once those tears are wiped from our eyes, there's no more death. There's no more mourning. There's no more crying. There's no more pain. For those things have died. Those things have passed away. And in heaven, we'll be the perfect imitators of Jesus Christ. We'll be unstained. We'll have no sin. We won't be ruling. We won't be God. But morally, we'll be perfect. And we'll enjoy unbroken perfect relationship with him, not only with him, but we will have unbroken, perfect relationship with each other for eternity. Isn't that amazing? You'll never get mad at me ever again. <laughs> we'll never have harsh words. We'll never have problems. We'll never have sinful disagreements. It'll be untainted, sinless fellowship forever. And that is a miracle. So that's what Jesus says heaven will be like, a place with no sin, 
perfect relationship with God and others. That's a place I'm looking forward to, amen. And in uncertain times in which we live, we seek to imitate Christ and we have hope that one day everything, and we know that one day everything will be perfect. Father in heaven, as we close our time together, we thank you for what you've given us in Christ Jesus. Lord, as we prepare to worship you with our hearts in closing today, if there's one in here that's never placed their faith in you, Lord, my prayer is that they will do so today. Never turn from their sin and their idols and place their faith in you, that they would do so today. Today would be their day of salvation. Father, if there's one in here today that is uncertain about where they are in their life, and maybe they're waiting on you, that you would just show them just to continue walking the path with you. Just continue the, the Christian walk of fellowship. They would keep their eyes on you and trusting in you as they seek to imitate you in all these ways we've talked about. Imitate in faithfulness. Imitate in love in all these areas, Lord. You would give them your spirit to do so. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus who saved us. And we, today we, we pour out our praise to you in response during this time of response. Lord, we love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name.